Thank you for standing and worshiping. You may be seated. I'm glad that Jesus didn't leave us comfortless. Amen. He sent his comforter. He said, I, Lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the world. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But we're here. We made it. And uh, we are embarking on a brand new season, a brand new day. And with that in mind, I've been uh, thinking about a particular topic that I'd like to introduce us to today, and it's the topic of decisions. Everyone said decisions. Uh, and I want to talk specifically about godly decision-making, godly decision-making, because decisions are the building blocks of your life. The entire trajectory of your life is based on the decisions that you make. The decisions that you make impact every single area of your life, and uh, some decisions more than others, uh, but even the smallest of decisions that seem insignificant can impact your entire life. And so it's important that we make the right decisions. It's important that we make godly decisions, and uh, I want to talk about that for a little bit today, and we may carry that on into next week as well. But I want to give us a few principles about decision-making, and we're going to look at uh, uh, several of the most important decisions that you'll ever make in your life. And uh, I want to take us to the next slide, and I want us to take a principle about decision-making. Everyone said decision-making. And the first principle that I want you to look at, because I've seen this uh, impact so many people's lives is that you don't make major life decisions on temporary emotions. You don't make major life decisions on temporary emotions. Uh, I, I've counseled many young people who, uh, who thought they were in love, but they were, they were basing it on temporary emotions. That's a dangerous thing to do. And you need to guard your heart and guard your mind and when you're hurting, when you're hurting, that's a very dangerous time to make major life decisions. When you're bitter, that's a terrible time to make major life decisions. And uh, sometimes you just have to step back. Maybe somebody's harmed you. Maybe somebody's hurt you. Maybe somebody's let you down. That's not the time to make a major life decision. Sometimes you have to step back, breathe a little bit. Everybody breathe in, wake up, breathe out. Sometimes that's what you have to do before you make a major life decision because when you're in the throes of pain, when you're in the throes of heartache, making a major life decision can destroy your life because you're not thinking clearly when you're hurting. When you're fearful, that's not the time to make a major life decision. I've often used the illustration, uh, I have... As all of you know, I've mentioned it far too many times. I'm starting to make myself sound neurotic. But uh, I have a, a, a terrible, irrational fear of snakes. I don't care if it's a little gardener snake that looks like a worm. If it's a snake, I'm afraid of it. I don't like it. I don't want it around. Uh, Brother Dan was at our house a few weeks back or a few months back, and there was a giant snake in my backyard. And I was praying through to the Holy Ghost, I want you to know. I mean praying. And uh, it was ugly. It was black. It was, 
it was several feet long. And in my mind, it was 12 feet long. It was probably only two or three feet long. And, and Brother Dan looked at me. He said, don't worry about it. That's a good snake. I said, there is no such thing. That's of the devil. There are no good snakes. And uh, I have a fear of snakes. And, uh, and so my, my reaction to that is always to run or do something crazy. And I've, I've often embarrassed my wife. My wife has that same irrational fear of spiders. Every spider, it doesn't matter. If it even looks like a spider. And uh, my kids went through a, a prankster time in their life. My daughter at school, they, uh, they gave her a, a little fake spider. Have you ever seen those little fake spiders that look real? I mean, they look real. And uh, she used to put that thing under my wife's pillow. And uh, when my wife would go to bed at night, she'd pick that pillow up and, there's, that's, and my wife would just go crazy. Well, in, in those moments uh, we, in life, when you're fearful, maybe not on that level, but when you're fearful, we react, don't we? We sometimes go crazy. We temporarily lose our minds, we sometimes say. And when you're fearful, you'll do things that you would never do under normal circumstances. And so that is not the right time to make a major life decision. If you're making a major life decision out of fear, then you're making a mistake. You need to be very careful. You've got to step back, breathe, and ask the Lord, what is the right decision? What's the godly decision to make right now? <clears throat> and I want us to look at Numbers 13 and 31. This is a story. We're just going to read the one uh, verse here, but to set it up for you. The Israelites had wandered for decades in the wilderness. How many remember that? They wandered for decades in the wilderness, looking for the promised land that God had told them uh, was theirs for the taking. And I want you to remember that God had already told them that it was there for the taking. And I feel in 2016 that God has given some of us promises. He said, here, here's the land. It's yours for the taking. Here's revival. It's yours for the taking. Here's deliverance. It's yours for the taking. Here's joy. It's yours for the taking. Here's strength. Here's power in the Holy Ghost. It's yours for the taking. God has already given you promises. The question is, do you believe them? Will you trust them? And will you walk by faith in to those promises? And Moses told uh, these men, uh, including Joshua and Caleb, uh, but there were other men. He said, I want you to go into the land of promise that God has already given us. It's already ours, but I just want you to go look at the land and bring a report back. And when these spies went into the promised land, it was inhabited by giants. It was inhabited by giants. It was beautiful. It was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. That means it was prosperous. That means it was plentiful. There was food. There was sustenance. There were already beautiful homes built. It was already cultivated. And God said, I'm going to give you houses that you didn't build. I'm going to give you farms and, and harvests that you didn't plant. I'm going to give you things that the enemy provided for you, but I'm going to take it back from the enemy and I'm going to give it to you. Somebody needs to receive that word this morning. God has some things for you that you didn't plant, that you didn't build, that you didn't do. And it seems like it's in possession of the enemy right now. And you need to recognize that God's saying, I'm going to give it to you if you'll walk by faith and go into it. But don't make a decision out of fear. Don't make a decision out of intimidation. Don't make a decision out of insecurity. 
And so when these men went in, except for Joshua and Caleb, these men, they went up with him and said, they came back from the land after seeing the giants. And they said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. They made a decision based on insecurity. They made a decision based on a lack of faith because they started looking at the enemy. They started looking at the problem. They started looking at the difficulty. The Bible says, be careful. Uh, The man who observeth the clouds, he's not going to reap a harvest. What does that mean? When you start looking at the storms that might come and when you start looking at how cold it is outside, you'll say, I'm never going to reap a harvest. You've got to stop looking at the weather report and start looking at your God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who flung the stars into space and say, I know it looks difficult. I know I might feel afraid, but I'm going to step back and I'm going to recognize that my God God is greater than my surroundings. My God is greater than my culture. My God is greater than financial struggles. My God is greater than my emotional deficiencies. My God is greater than depression. Somebody needs to reach out and grab this this morning. God is bigger than all my fears, the song used to say. God is bigger than all my problems, the song used to say. He's bigger than the mountains. He's bigger than the valleys. He's bigger than the darkness of night. He's bigger than the tears that you cried on your pillow last night. God is greater than all of those things. And the question is, will you have an evil report like these men did? Or will you have a good report? And because these men had an evil report, they were destined to wander in the wilderness once again. Listen. We're coming in a new year and you're going to have to make a lot of decisions in this new year that will affect the rest of your life. Let me encourage you, do not make major life decisions based on fear and based on faithlessness because you will be robbed of your promise. You'll be robbed of your victory. You'll be robbed of your strength if you make life decisions just looking at this world, just looking at all of the problems. Don't look at the problem. I I saw something the other day that said, be careful negative people because they have a problem for every solution. Isn't that true? There's a lot of people who have a problem for every solution. It doesn't matter what you say. They've got a problem for it. Beware of that kind of attitude. It will rob you of your joy. It will rob you of your Holy Ghost. It will rob you of your power in God. And so do not, everyone say it with me, do not make major life decisions on temporary emotions. Now, I want to take us to the next slide because we're going to talk about five, everyone said five, major life decisions that will impact your entire life. Now, I'm approaching this from a spiritual perspective. Of course, there are hundreds and hundreds of decisions that we have to make uh, every day. Uh, There are thousands of decisions that we make throughout our lifetime that will impact our entire lives. But I want to talk about uh, five that I think are, are very likely the most important decisions that you'll make in your lifetime. Many of you have already made these decisions. Some of you haven't. Some of you are wavering in these decisions. Did you know that you can make a decision and then as life goes on, you can waver in that decision? You can start to doubt yourself. You can start to doubt your decisions. And that's often what the, the enemy will do is he'll come in. And he'll try to bring doubt. He'll try to bring confusion. 
He'll try to cause you to go backwards in decisions that you should have settled a long, long time ago. It's important that we be settled in our faith, that we be settled in our decisions and not, as the Apostle Paul said, you know, blown about with every wind of doctrine, not constantly battered by, by every storm that comes. Have you ever known somebody that every time a storm came into their life, they began to doubt every decision they'd ever made, every problem, every trial, every situation? But a child of God who is grounded in their faith, when the storms of life come, they can stand strong. You know why? Because their house isn't built on the sand. Their house is built on the rock that is Christ Jesus. And when you've settled that your life is built on a sure, firm foundation, the rock of ages, then you are, you're not going to be tossed about with every storm, with every flood that comes into your life. You're going to stand firm. So let me take you to number one, the number one uh, decision. And I think that every, I think this is the most important decision you'll make. And there are many, as you'll see, there's many little decisions that go along with it. This decision, this life decision will impact every other area of your life. Every other area of your life. Why are you talking about this particular one, Ryan? I'll tell you why. Because there are many Christians who, uh, who even though they might come to church, they might do things, they are still wrestling in their mind with this decision. And it's simply this. How you view and apply the Bible to your life. I might could say it this way. How seriously do you take the Bible? How important is the Bible in your life? Do you reverence the Bible? Do you consider it to be the inspired, infallible word of God? What do I mean when I say that? Let me just boil it. I'm using words like inspired and infallible. Those are kind of big theological words. Let me just boil it down. Do you believe that every single word, and I mean every word, no, you you just mean the big parts of it, right? No, no. I mean, do you believe that every single word, every I that's dotted, every T that's crossed in the King James, every jot and every tittle, the King James says, that's Old English, for every I being dotted, every T being crossed, do you believe that every line, every phrase is the literal word of God that you should believe and apply to your life, that you should take it seriously? Do you believe that the Bible is the good book? It's the holy book, that it is literally God's word. It is God's love letter to you and me. And it's not just something that we should read like history or it is historical, but it's more than just a history book. It's more than just poetry. It's more than just prose. It's more than just words on a page. It's more than just a book of suggestions. It's more than just a book that we should say, well, that's good. And I'll kind of weigh it in the balance. No, no, no. It is the inspired word of God. And I need every word. It is my bread. It is my bread when I wake up in my morning. It is my sustenance when I lay my head down on the pillow at night. You ought to wake up reading the word. You ought to go to sleep reading the word. The word ought to ever be on your lips. You ought to hide it in your heart that you might not sin against God. Jesus said in response to Satan's temptations in the wilderness, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. 
We need every single word. And many people have decided that I like this part of the Bible and I like that part of the Bible and I like this. It's okay to have a favorite verse. It's okay to have a verse. I have verses that speak to me. I have a verse that I woke up. Many of you know I had four open heart surgeries by the time I was six years old. had holes in my heart, overgrown arteries and all kinds of things. They called me a blue baby. And uh, I, I have a vivid memory and my fourth surgery of waking up on the operating table. And I, I want you to know, if you ever wake up on an operating table in the middle of a heart operation and you, see your, you wake up and see your heart exposed, I'm going to tell you, you're going to get the Holy Ghost right then and there. And I remember vividly waking up and there was my heart. I could see it beating on the table and I could see the doctor over and blood everywhere and the nurses all around. And, and, and before... Before they could get that mask over my face to, to get me knocked out one more time, I remember in that operating table, I don't know why it came to me, but, but that scripture came to my mind, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. It's like, it's like the Lord just breathed that scripture into my heart and into my mind. And from that day till this day, Whenever I'm going through a trial, whenever I'm hurting, whenever I'm discouraged, my mind will just go back to that scripture that up on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I can't help it. It's one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. And because of that, I've preached it probably a thousand times because it's my favorite scripture. Another one that comes to me often when I'm hurting is, uh, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That scripture is a comfort to me to know that no matter what I'm going through, the great shepherd is leading me and guiding me and walking with me and encouraging and correcting me and whatever I have to do, whatever I have to go through, God is there with me. What an awesome comfort that is but I want you to know the word of God is more than just a few trite verses that I like it's got to be every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God and so when it says love your neighbor I've got to love my neighbor when it says forgive those who persecute you I've got to forgive those who persecute you even the scriptures that I don't like and you know what I know this is politically incorrect to say but there are scriptures that I don't always like because they rebuke me. There are scriptures that correct me and sometimes I read it and I realize that my heart's not right. And when I read that scripture, I don't want to forgive my enemy, Lord. Anybody ever felt that way? Anybody human in this place? There's times when the Bible calls me to repentance and I don't feel like repenting. You know why? Because I'm carnal. That's what happens to us. We don't... We don't always like every scripture, but we need every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Many Christians have decided, I'm just going to take a little here. I call it marshmallow Christianity. You know why I call it that? Because it reminds me of my son. My son loves Lucky Charms. Oh, they're anointed. They, oh, hallelujah. And they're just pure sugar pretty much, but... Uh, my son loves like, and I love Lucky Charms too. So, I, unfortunately, when when uh, when my wife gets them, she gets those boxes that are bigger than this pulpit, and uh, and I I'm supposed to eat the shredded wheat, but when there's Lucky Charms, I go straight to the Lucky Charms, and my son gets them and he gets a bowl of them, and what he likes to do, and he loves them. 
but he just picks the marshmallows. And all he does, he'll, you'll get over there and there'll be a giant bowl. And all he's done is eaten all the marshmallows out of the Lucky Charm. And trying to get him to eat the other stuff is, is I mean, it's a national problem trying to get him to eat the other stuff. And that's what a lot of Christians do with the Bible. They take all of the marshmallows out, the, good, the stuff that they like, and they leave all the rest in the bowl. And they don't get any sustenance. Because the Bible doesn't work that way. It won't nourish your life when all you do is take the little part that makes you feel good here and the little part that makes you feel good there and leave all of the rest. And every child of God and everyone who is making major life decisions has to decide. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. You have to decide at some point whether or not you're going to apply the entire Bible to your life. You have to decide if it's your absolute authority in life. Everyone said absolute authority. That means the buck stops here. That means it is absolute. If it says it, you believe it, you're going to do it. That means that no man's opinion trumps the word of God. That means that nothing else has greater authority in your life than the word of God. You've got to decide if you're going to apply it to your life. The, uh, the apostle said that you know there are people that they're hearers of the word. They hear it. And the implication is that they might even believe it. I've known thousands of people who heard the word and they believed the word, but they never became doers of the word. It, you know, pastor made this point the other day, and it's a powerful point. You know, the demons believe and they tremble and it does nothing for them. It doesn't matter if you hear it. It doesn't matter if you believe it's true, if you don't apply it to your life. Can I get an amen? Number three, you've got you've to study and make decisions regarding salvation and sound doctrine. So once you believe that the Bible is the great authority in your life, once you believe that it's the inspired, infallible Word of God. By the way, I'm not here to convince you of these things. That would be another lesson for another day. I'm just telling you some decisions you've got to make. We can sit down and, and talk about how to make those decisions another time. But You've got to make decisions regarding salvation. You need to know what it takes to be saved. You wouldn't want a doctor to come in and say, well, we're going to figure out how to do the surgery on your heart as we go. No, no. Salvation is much more. There's people that, that put more thought into what they're going to eat for lunch than they do their salvation. There's people who make, put more thought into where they're going to get their fast food from than they do their salvation. That's not the will of God. You've got to study to show yourself approved, the Bible says. And you've got to study sound doctrine. And so that means that, that church, what do we do here? We study the word of God. That's why church needs to be a number one priority in your life so that you can study to show yourself approved. And finally, you must decide if you will allow the Bible to correct. Everyone say correct. That means when you begin to get revelation, when, the, when you begin to see illumination from the word of God, You've got to decide if you realize that you're doing something wrong, if you realize that you're doing something that's sinful, if you realize that you're doing something that is contrary to God's word and God's will, you have to decide if you will allow the Bible to correct you and you change and allow the Bible. to. What does that word conviction mean? Everyone know what conviction means? Sometimes Conviction is sometimes what we think of as conscience. We all have a God-given conscience. And uh, you need to be very careful. The Bible talks about the, uh, mankind's ability to sear their own conscience. Have you ever been burned by something? 
If you get burned by something badly enough, when your skin grows back, it grows back as a scar. And the scar tissue oftentimes has no feeling. And when you sear your conscience, you can burn it to the place where you, you're not able to feel conviction any longer. Now, God can deliver you from that. But I'm going to tell you, once you sear your conscience, it's very, very, very hard to go back to that place where you can feel the convicting power of God. And conviction doesn't feel good, but it's very, very necessary. We need to allow God to convict us and say, no, that's not okay. No, that's not right. No, no, don't go there. Don't do that. We need to allow God to do that because he's leading us and guiding us. Just like my children don't like it when I tell them that they can't play in the street. I don't do that out of hatred. I don't do that because I don't want them to have a good time. I want them to be happy. I want them to be blessed. But I also want them to live to see another day. And so many times God is telling us to stop because he wants us to live and be happy and have joy. And we have to decide if we believe God knows best or do we think that we know best. And that's, a, that's probably one of the greatest life decisions you'll ever make. Do you believe that God knows best or do you believe that you know best? We all have to make that decision. Now, the Bible contains 100% of what we need to know about the will of God. Everyone said the will of God. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions about searching for the will of God. You ever talk to someone, they're always searching for the will of God. I mean, they're always, always searching. I prayed all night searching for the will of God. Now, I know that there's times where that might be okay. But when it comes to matters of morality, you don't have to pray all night wondering what God's will. It's already in his word. I had a guy come to me one time and say, well, I'm trying to decide if it would be okay for me to cheat on my wife. So I've been praying about it all last night. I say, hey, you don't have to pray for one second. Open up your Bible. It's in the word. And so many times we struggle with God's will because we have not hid God's word in our heart. And by the way, God's leading in your life will never contradict his word. God will never lead you to be rebellious to your pastor or harm your church. God will never lead you to be immoral. God will never, ever, ever lead you to harm somebody or hurt somebody. How many believe that today? And so I, I've had people doing all kinds of horrible things and tell me, well, I'm just following the leading of God. I can tell you, you're not following the leading of God because you're contradicting God's word. God's will and his voice will never contradict his word. If you hear a voice in your head telling you to do something contrary to God's word, I'm going to tell you it's either the devil or it's a delusion. God will never contradict, contradict himself. Amen. All right. I want to read you a quote in the next slide from Charles Swindoll. Uh, he said this in, in his great book on the Bible called The Bible and You. He said, the better you know the word of God, everyone said the word of God, the less confusing is the will of God. You won't have confusion about the will of God if you know the word of God. Those who struggle the least with the will of God are those who know the word of God. So if you want to be a better decision maker, then you need to know the word of God. You're going to struggle with decision making if you don't have a, a powerful discipline of studying the word of God. I know that's not the kind of teaching that gets us running the aisles because 
The minute we say the word steady, we all kind of lose our minds. But, but we have to be in the word of God. We have to be in the word of God. We have to be in the word of God. I'm going to tell you, if you know the word of God, it will save you from countless, countless hours of heartache. Because it will lead. The, the psalmist said, I want your word to be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. When you get God's word deep in your heart, it begins to illuminate your footsteps metaphorically. So when you're walking in darkness and when you don't know what to do, God's word will suddenly illuminate the way and things will become clear that used to be cloudy and things will come into focus that used to be fuzzy. And some of us right now are walking through life. It's like we have a bad prescription in our glasses. We, we can't hardly see where we're supposed to go. And it's because we have not incorporated God's word into our hearts. We've got to get it deep down inside of us so that we can walk with clarity. Okay, next slide. Number two. This is the second, I think, most important decision that you'll make in your entire life. What church you attend... And your attitude towards it. Once you've, once you've decided to, that the Bible is uh, the, the gr- of greatest importance in your life, then you have to decide what church you'll attend. But not just what church you'll attend, but what your attitude towards church is. You must decide your level of involvement, your participation, your attendance, your support. And I'm, I mean by that financial. And I also mean by that your time, whether or not you're involved. And if you read the bulletin, the January bulletin, I want to encourage all of you to make a New Year's resolution to be more faithful to the house of God than you've ever been before. Be here on Sunday morning. Be here on Sunday night. Do your best to be here on midweek Bible study. You know why? To do what we've been talking about all this time, to get God's word deep down in your heart so you can make right decisions, so that you can be led by the word of God, so that the anointing can lead you and guide you. I can tell you right now that uh, I've, I've talked to many, many pastors across the country, and they've all told me this one thing. There, I don't care what size, if it's a church of 20 or a church of 500, there is no such thing as a church that would ever have a single financial problem if everyone who considered themselves a member gave faithfully of their tithes and offerings as the Bible instructed them to do. If there was 100%, nobody would even hardly ever have to get, there would never be a need for extra offerings or things of that nature if everybody who considered themselves a member gave faithfully, as the word instructs us to do. And so we have to make that decision. We have to make that decision very carefully, especially when you read verses like when, when God said, will a man rob God, and yet you've withheld your tithes from me? That's a very dangerous scripture, and we need to read it with fear and trembling. Number two, you must determine what your attitude will be. Do you love the church? Do you, do, you, uh, do you care about the church? Are you faithful? Are you loyal to the church? When you see a brother or sister, and when I say the church, do I mean this building? No, I don't mean this building. I mean the person sitting beside you and the person in front of you and the person behind you. Do I love that person? Do I, do I see someone hurting and do I reach out to them? Do I see somebody who's struggling and losing their faith? And do I reach over and encourage them in the Lord? Do I see a, a Sunday school class that needs taught and there's nobody that seems to be willing to do it? And will I say, hey, Lord, you're calling me. I'm willing to go. Do I see something that's not getting done? And will I make a decision? I'm going to do more than just show up and sit down, but I'm going to get involved. That's what we do when we love the house of God and the things of God. You've got to determine your loyalty level. If you're constantly looking for greener pastures, I'm going to tell you, 
You got to be careful with that. You'll never be satisfied. The next green pasture you go to will never seem green enough. Once you get that in your heart, it will never seem green enough. You must determine whether you will allow your pastor to actually be a pastor. This one is very, very, very important. Everyone said a pastor. Just another word for shepherd really is the word for shepherd. We think of biblically, we know that Jesus is the great shepherd. And we know that a pastor is really an under shepherd. So he's the shepherd who is just he, he is the one who answers directly to the great shepherd. So he's an under, our pastor is an under shepherd who answers directly. And the Bible says that a pastor will have to give an account for everything that he says. A pastor will have to give an account to God for how he led. A pastor will have to give an account to God if he's your pastor. He'll have to give an account to God for how he led you. And so a pastor does that with fear and trembling. He ought to anyway. If he doesn't, he's not a true man of God. A true man of God takes that as a great, great, great challenge in his life. And every, and listen, we're living in a culture where we have a lot of people who have preachers, but they don't have pastors. They, and do you know what the difference between a preach, having a preacher and a pastor is? Uh, a preacher is when you just have someone who preach me a nice sermon, give me a little word that makes me feel good, but don't ever speak into my life outside of that. And if I don't like it, I'll go talk about it over lunch. If I don't receive it, I'll go have pastor soup later on. That's having a preacher. Having a pastor is when you say, I actually have a shepherd who I am allowing. And a pastor can't force it on you, just like God will not force his will on you. A pastor cannot force his will. If God can't do it, a pastor can't do it. God isn't going to force you to live right. He's not going to force you to live holy. He's given you this thing called free will. And a pastor can't come be a policeman in your life. That's not his job. You have to make a free will decision. I'm going to have a pastor, a shepherd in my life. And every once in a while, what that means is when I'm trying to slip out when I'm trying to slip out of the gate and I'm trying to get out into the danger zone where the wolves are, I've got to trust my pastor to reach that staff out and pull me back and correct me and say, no, come on back here into the sheepfold. That means that you allow a pastor to actually shepherd you, lead you, guide you, and do more than just give you a nice little word that makes you feel good. I don't know about you, but I want to have a pastor in my life. Bishop, pastor, you're my pastor. You're not just my preacher. Speak into my life. Talk to me correct me rebuke me whatever you've got to do listen i've been a preacher for over 10 years now and i still need a pastor in my life every once in a while that will speak in and say ryan you're losing your mind you're going crazy you've got it you're not thinking clearly you're making a decision out of fear we all have we never we never get to a place where we don't need a pastor. I don't care who you are. I don't care how holy you are. I don't care if you've laid hands on the sick and seen them recover. There is no such thing as a person who does not need a pastor. And secondly, another danger that I've noticed is a kind of a new, a new phenomenon in church culture is people who want a buddy and not a pastor. You know, a pastor can love you and be your friend, and he absolutely does. I love every single one of you, and I can tell you, Pastor, I've come into this church and walked into this sanctuary and heard him weeping for God and calling out your name before God. He loves you. I love you. Bishop loves you. We love you with all our heart, and I consider all of you friends. But in the end, I've got to be more than your buddy. We've got to be more than your buddy. 
Because sometimes we've got to be a voice crying out in the wilderness like John the Baptist. And we've got to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when that happens, you've got to go beyond the buddy and the friendship. And you've got to say, this is a man of God who is speaking prophetically into my life. And so many people want, they want a buddy and not a pastor. And that's a dangerous thing. You need to be willing to have someone who can speak prophetically in your life. And let me say this. You can't accept the great shepherd and reject his under shepherd. You cannot accept the great shepherd. That's Bible. You cannot say, well, I just follow Jesus. It's me and him. That's not how Jesus set it up. Jesus set it up to where he's the great shepherd and he places an under shepherd in your life. And if you reject the under shepherd, you have rejected the great shepherd. Jeremiah 3.15, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Next slide, Hebrews 13 and 17. Stand with me. We'll close with this one. This scripture is, is not just talking about secular leadership. This scripture is talking about church leadership and pastors. It says this, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. We only made it through two of the five most important decisions. Next week, I want to I talk to you about the third decision. And uh, let me go ahead and take you to Proverbs 10 and 17 in the next slide. And let's read this together. This is the New Living. It says, people who accept discipline are on the pathway to life. Anybody like discipline? I like discipline. It's good for me. I can tell you, I, I was raised in a home where, where uh, when I was losing my mind and going crazy like all teenagers do, you show me a teenager who's completely sane, and, uh, and <laughs> I'll give you a million dollars and a house in Florida. Teenagers lose their minds, and I was no different. I lost my mind more times. I mean, I was crazy from the top of my head to the sole <laughs> of my feet. And my mother was a private detective. I mean, she could smell a lie. She could smell trouble. I mean, she could look in my eyes, and she would do it too. I mean, she could tell when I was averting my gaze. You know, you can, one, of the, one of the signs that someone's lying is when they start shifting their eyes. And I'd come in, where have you been tonight? Shifting my eyes. And my mama would grab me by the face and say, look me in the eye, boy, and tell me where you've been. And if I looked away... She knew something wasn't right. It was discipline. It was correction. That's why I'm standing here. You know why I'm standing here today? Because my parents were willing to discipline and correct me. I wouldn't be, I'm going to tell you, I'd be lost. I would be lost. I, I promise you, I, I'm no better than anybody else. I would be lost as can be. But I had parents who would grab me by the head, look me in the eye and say, where have you been? What are you thinking? And I didn't always like it, but I received correction in my life that made me the man that I am today. But those who ignore correction will go astray. We never get to a place where we don't need correction once in a while. I don't care who we are. We all need it once in a while. And we have to make a decision. Will we allow godly? Everyone said godly. Will we allow godly correction in our lives or will we reject it? It's a decision we have to make. 
Let's bow our heads. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would touch everybody here, people making New Year's resolutions right and left, all kinds of decisions being made, some big, some small. I pray, Lord, that we would make the right decisions this year. I pray that we would put you first. I pray that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, God. I thank you for every precious person under the sound of my voice. I pray you would lead them, guide them, be with them, Lord. We love you and praise you, and we give you honor. And everyone said, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen.